If you're looking for a roadmap to financial health and smart investing, remember, money meets at the intersection of Mulholland and Cooperstock. After your family and your health, your money, your investments should be number three on your life top 10 list. I am Mark Cooperstock, and along with my partner, Stephen Mulholland, a CFA charter holder and CFP, are the principals of Mulholland and Cooperstock Asset Management. Our firm is a registered investment advisor with offices in San Diego and Summerlin, Nevada, with only one goal in mind, to provide meaningful, thoughtful, and tax-efficient advice. We provide investment and generational wealth management guidance while keeping a sharp eye on the economy and the markets. So come along, join us on this journey as we look to help you navigate the superhighway of financial news and global markets amidst the daily traffic of forecasts, speculators, and prognostications. You have arrived. Remember, money meets at the intersection of Mulholland and Cooperstock. Engineer Griff is in school today and won't be in the booth, but let's welcome my partner, Stephen Mulholland. Stephen, where are we going today? Hey, Mark. Uh, today, we are going to give a Q3 2020-22 markets update. So how have markets performed year-to-date through 2022? And it's been, uh, I guess it's fair to say the last few years have been eventful, but it's been a very, uh, it, it, 2022 certainly qualifies as an eventful year. And for a bond guy, uh, and, and we'll be talking a fair amount about bonds today, but for a bond guy, um, you know, it's it's uh, in clothing and music, hairstyles, the 90s are coming back in vogue. Um, the way interest rates are moving uh, also seems to be harking back to the 90s or earlier. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, it, it takes me back uh, to the mid 80s when and in the 90s and when interest rates actually meant something when, you know, money markets paid 5% and savings accounts at banks paid 5%, you know, you, you didn't feel like you were getting hurt by being in cash, you know, or cash substitutes. Yeah. I, th I think the banks are going to bring the balloons back outside of the uh, branches advertising the 5% rate. And as, as you quipped a few weeks ago, Mark, they may even be able to afford the free toasters again. Hey, I, mean, I, I did get a free toaster once in the seventies, I think. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have it anymore, but yeah. That, that's perfect. Um, so 2022 has been an eventful year. The main, uh, the main event, as we've been uh, talking about on our blog, previous podcasts and with clients, is interest rates are finally rising. Um, I'm getting a lot of deja vu this year. Current federal chair, who's a non-Nobel Prize winning, non-PhD, it's, it's incredible that he feels he can even show up to work every day at the central bank. Um, but uh, Jerome Powell uh, tried to raise rates in 2018. And uh, at that time, you remember, uh, inflation was not high. We had a different president. And uh, after the stock market went down 20%, uh, Jerome Powell pivoted from uh, his Paul Volcker impression and became more like Alan Greenspan, Ben Bernanke, and Janet Yellen and brought interest rates back to zero. Well, this year, Jerome Powell put his Paul Volcker Halloween costume back on, and now he's attempting to rise interest rates again. And Mark, um, I'd say that has a little bit of an impact on markets. Yeah, well, in 2018, he was with his timing late in the year. He was the Grinch who saved Christmas. Right? <laughs> he, he he reversed his uh, his his policy right before a week or so before the Christmas holidays. And I think this year, many people are just referring to him simply as the Grinch. Uh, 
Speaking yeah. of which, at the uh, the Rady Shell in San Diego, they're doing a live performance of the Grinch. Uh, they're showing the movie and doing the symphony. So maybe I'll dress up like Jerome Powell when I go. <laughs> I'd like to see that. <laughs> okay, so we started the year uh, the the U.S. the the yield curve, which measures uh, it measures the yields on Treasury bills, notes, and bonds from one month to thirty years. Uh, the yield curve was on the floor. Right, um, uh, one to three month uh, treasury bills, as you alluded before, uh, related related to the Fed funds rate paid paid zero, paid nothing, and if you went all the way out to uh, to the ten year ten year year U.S. Treasury bonds, we started the year at one point five percent. Fast forward through the end of Q three of of this year, and the one to three month treasury bills were yielding uh, an average of three point two five. And the 10-year was up to almost 4%. In fact, as we've talked a little bit about, the yield curves inverted, where um, the uh, uh, yields for two to two to three-year treasuries uh, uh, yielded about 4.25, actually higher than the 10-year. Uh, you may have our listeners may have read about inverted yield curves and what that means, but essentially it means that the market expects the Fed's interest rate hikes to slow the economy enough that they'll be cutting. Uh, in the not too distant future. So anytime you see an inverted yield curve, it means that uh, the market is not bullish on future growth. Interest rates rising is incredibly important for every market uh, across the world. Uh, and we're certainly seeing that uh, in the UK and uh, developing markets today. But the, the primary um, mechanism by which higher interest rates uh, affect the markets and slow the economy down is through housing. And that's because the 10-year U.S. Treasury and the 30-year mortgage are so related. Um, if you tell us what the 10-year Treasury rate is, we'll tell you what the 30-year fixed rate mortgage is going to be. And sure enough, um, mortgages, uh, do you remember what we started the year or uh, what, what the bottom of the uh, mortgage rates were, Mark? Well, I, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, personal, personal, my personal experience is that uh, we closed on our home, our current home, uh, just a little over a year ago. So let's say 13 months ago, September of 2021. And I did a conventional 30 year fixed at 3.2%. So that was a year ago. And today, do you want me to, do you want the, do you want to hit the drum roll or do you want me to? No, that, that, that's a perfect setup, Mark. And the, no, that's right. Mortgage rates for the, for the, for the typical uh, highest of quality borrowers like yourself, um, uh, bottomed a, a little bit below 3%. And uh, depending on uh, what's, what data source you use, mortgage rates are now around 7%. 750, 7.15 this morning. Uh, and that's from Mortgage News Daily? Yes. Perfect, 715. So, and, and I think it's um, especially, just, just in case we have any economists or academics listening, Mark, I think we need to make it uh, really simple for them. Um, uh, you know, our, our average listener will understand uh, 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 more viscerally, especially those who are looking to buy a house or bought a house recently. Uh, but in case Ben Bernanke got a hold of this, we're going to explain to him why that's such a big deal. Um, the, I, I, I took my house, uh, which I bought five years ago, uh, and it, it just, similar to you, we have a mortgage rate of around 3%. I was just curious if I took the, uh, what I paid for my house five years ago into what our neighbor's house sold for most recently. And I took a mortgage rate from 3% to 7%. Uh, 
what would that monthly payment look like? And uh, right now I have a monthly payment uh, uh, all in property taxes, interest, uh, principal of around 3000. And if I, if I were to buy my house today at market rates, both prices and mortgage rates, uh, the monthly payment amount uh, would shoot to $7,117. So more than double. Um, so again, the same house, nothing really changed, uh, but because of the COVID real estate boom followed by rising mortgage rates, uh, the, the monthly cost of the home more than doubled. And Mark, 7000 for a, a month for, uh, for a house is, uh, uh, that, 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 that's, a, that's an amount that I don't think too many regular Americans can afford. No, certainly, certainly not on average, that's for sure. And you know, uh, people, people on the West Coast and in the bigger cities, you know, if you look at them, just to further your point that, you know, if you, if you have a million dollar mortgage, right, and look at that differential and in interest rate, you go from 7% to 3%, that's 4%, that's $40,000 a year more in interest. So $3,300, right, $3,300 more. Additionally, this year, it would cost you per month to buy that house, have a million dollar mortgage than it did a year ago. No, that's right. And as you said, this year, it was it was so fast, right? We've never, uh, the, the only period in history where we had mortgage rates rise so quickly um, goes back to the 1970s, uh, when who we referenced before, Paul Vol Volcker was a Federal Reserve Chairman. And at that time, uh, home builders, uh, uh, you probably remember, Mark, I've, I've certainly heard stories, but the home builders started sending two by fours uh, to Paul Volcker to try to emphasize to him how he was killing the housing market. So yeah, yeah that's the only, uh, the only precedent we have. Um, and uh, I, the speed with which it happened, and I, I will touch on this throughout this uh, presentation, followed by some, some good news. Uh, but the, the, the speed with which it happened means, uh, you know, everybody's still adjusting to this reality. What we've seen so far in San Diego, for example, is that home sale activity has fallen almost 40%. So what we've seen so far is sellers listed homes for prices that made sense six months ago, a year ago, and buyers are balking at that because they're going in the Redfin app or the Trulia app or Zillow, and they're seeing that seven or 8,000 per month saying, well, I can't, I can't spend that. And so far, rather than lower the price, the sellers are just taking it off the market. So we've seen a little bit of housing inventory build, but right now we're kind of in a standoff uh, where buyers don't want to pay. And sellers are just listing a few of their houses. As, as I, Ivy Selman likes to say, uh, eventually the 3Ds start to kick in, uh, death, default, and divorce. Um, but uh, absent those 3Ds for discretionary sellers, um, those people right now are just taking their homes off the market. Right, right. And in, and in markets, uh, you know, Los Angeles, you know, certainly parts of San Diego, San Francisco, big cities on the West Coast, I guess big... Big metropolitan areas around the country, you know, the so much of the, the topic has been that the rise and this rise in prices that we've seen, right? And uh, in, in, you know, get into bidding wars, you know, 10, 11, you know, offers on a house and going houses going for well over their asking price has really kept uh, the first time home buyer out of the market. And, you know, we've, we've said uh, realtors that I know have, have said for years now, people don't look at the price. They look at what can they afford a month? What, what, what does that house translate to a monthly payment? And does that fit into their budget? Well, 
now those numbers are as we just went through that exercise are up you know in some instances maybe a hundred percent or more so it, it's going to further preclude first-time home buyers um people that are used to you know seeing their house you know in seven figures or more um or you know two three million four million now all of a sudden they're not getting the interest and we're seeing that right houses being listed and now sitting for 60 90 days yep. moved up so now they're 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 trying to figure out what to do um people that have had you know variable variable mortgages right that the rates were fixed for five years or seven years and they did that when things were really cruising um you know 2015 to 2000 late you know, almost 20, all of a sudden now those rates are being reset at much higher levels and their payments are being reset. And they're like, they feel like they got hit by a, a, an anvil, you know, on one of the old Roadrunner commercials, <laughs> right? Um, so it's, it's, it's really hard. Um, you know, what I've heard from realtors in large metropolitan areas is, is that the very high-end homes are still selling a little slower, but generally you have people coming in that are big cash buyers. So, but that, that represents the smallest subset of, the, of, of real estate buyers today. Yeah. On that point, uh, Louis Vuitton, Moet, Hennessy just reported, I would think it was 25% uh, sales growth in the most recent quarter. So to your point, for now, the luxury high-end buyer is just fine. Um, it's more the uh, everybody else that's um, getting a bit of a reality check. Um, so that, that that's a good point. Um, we are optimists, and this is an optimistic podcast, so we have good news. If you are a prospective home buyer, as Mark said, if you've been frustrated by bidding wars and lack of inventory and prices being too high, um, I think home sellers, homeowners are being a little a little silly right now. Um, obviously, home prices have to come down uh, because the average person just the average. The average person doing very well uh, can't afford uh, homes at, at these prices. So, uh, Mark, I'm willing to wager home prices will come down, or I should say continue to come down. Um, San Diego, the metrics from Burns Real Estate Consulting Group has homes 30% overvalued. Um, Los Angeles, Orange County, the Bay Area uh, aren't going to be too different. So uh, uh, the interesting thing and sort of the multi-trillion dollar question is how long the Fed will keep rates high. But assuming the Federal Reserve uh, maintains uh, interest rates greater than zero, somewhere around, around where they are, they don't even have to rise much more. But if they keep rates where they are for a while, that affordability gap is going to close and home prices will get cheaper. Right. Now, I, I agree with that. If you're looking to buy and you're hoping rates are coming down, I think you're going to have to wait a little bit longer. Perfect. And, and that's a good tease. And I'm, I'm tempted to follow that road, but we're going to come back to that on um, the next Fed meeting. And uh, 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 but, uh, so excellent points. But before we go there, so the Fed raised uh, uh, interest rates. Mark, what's the Fed funds target rate today? It's uh, three, 350 is the middle point. Um, so, so the Fed funds target rate today, um, I think it's three to 325. But let me just double check. The Fed funds target rate today, you're absolutely right in the lower bound is 3%, 3% to 3.25%. Okay. I'm waiting for the next bump. You've already, Mark, as always, you're always one step ahead of the market. And um, and if listeners listen to this in November, you're absolutely going to be correct. But um, anyway, so the Fed funds effective target rates, it's a little funky that it's a target range. I think it's a bit silly. 
But anyway, the effective funds target rates three to three point two five percent. Not long ago, it was zero. Um, so the Fed's raised rates three uh, percent, and we already talked about the impact that's had on mortgages and housing, which we're just starting to feel now. Um, it's also had impacts on all markets. Uh, the S and P five hundred uh, through yesterday was down twenty four percent year to date. The Bloomberg Barclays aggregate used to be called the Lehman Brothers aggregate before they went uh, bust is down 15%. Uh, an index of uh, uh, outstanding 20-year treasury bonds are down 32% year-to-date. Uh, in fact, the only public asset class that has a positive return are an index of zero to three-month treasury bonds, which are up three-quarters of a point year-to-date. Uh, so, uh, and we'll talk to the stock market, but let's handle the bond market first. Mark, this uh, definitely underscores the importance. Uh, may maybe I'm going to throw a few questions your way. I'll be the interviewer. You can be the interviewee. But Mark, uh, a lot of our, a lot of the people we talk to, a lot of clients hear bonds. And because rates were nothing for 10 years, it, it almost seems like a pejorative. Like, why would you want bonds? Bonds, bonds always lose to stocks. Bonds are terrible. Um, my questions for you are one, Talk about the bond market and how it's not one thing, it's a lot of things. Two, what is bond duration? And three, this is self-promotional, but I, I, you deserve a high five. Uh, why did you keep our duration very short, which has been benefiting our, uh, our clients and investors? Right. So, uh, you know, when you hear the bond, when you hear the, the pundits talk about the bond market being down, they're talking about prices being down. Okay, so if you have a portfolio of bonds and you get your monthly statement, you look at it, you'll see the values are down. So it's a, it's a seesaw effect. It's an inverted relationship between interest rates and price. So as rates go up, prices drop. As rates drop, prices go up. Okay, think of a seesaw. Um, one of the reasons, and the, the primary reason for years now that we've stayed short in terms of duration and duration, the, the simplest explanation of duration is you can think of it in terms of term. Okay, but it's also it, it also includes some 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 other uh, data points like risk and and volatility. But generally, when you talk about duration, you're talking about the length uh, of time. Okay, that your 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 bonds will mature. Perfect. And we've stayed we've stayed short. This thing in terms of, of duration or maturity, we've stayed short, meaning two years, three years, maybe four years, if we were really really looking to pick up a little bit of extra return. Um, in anticipation of what we're going through right now, what we've been going through since the beginning of the year, and that's rates rising. So if you think that you have money um, continuously maturing, coming due, coming into you, and you want to be able to reinvest that at higher rates, um, that's the advantage of being short in, in duration or term. Um, and, and, and we're seeing that has, that's been a plus for our clients. Um, with interest rates now, with you know the one-year U.S. Treasury at almost four point three percent, it's one year is nothing, right? And U.S. Treasuries are very liquid; they are they're the the standard of the world, um, backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. If you think that you get you know over four and a quarter, almost four point three on a one-year U.S. Treasury, um, and if you don't think that's a good return. Just teleport yourself, as my son would say, teleport yourself back a year and a half or two <laughs> years when, when you know, the, 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 the one year was, you know, 10 or 15 beeps, basis points, right? One tenth of 1%. So, you know, 
four and a quarter is not bad, especially in a volatile market if you're not sure, or if you think you're going to need a large chunk of your money for an investment, to buy a house, to take a vacation, to pay for a wedding, to pay for college tuition. Um, four, four to four and a quarter for very short term is, is actually a pretty good yield and almost takes me back to the heydays of the 80s and 90s when 5% was that, was that number. So um, it, it's, it's not a bad place to be. We do expect rates to go a little, a little higher. I know you're going to get into that, Steve, and we're going to talk about that on the next podcast. Well, no, it's... Um, we are, but we yeah, are so, staying short. We are staying short. We're, we're investing in one, two, one and a half to two, maybe even two and a half year average uh, bond ladders. Um, so we're, get, we're picking up as, as much yield as we can a couple of years out, right? But we know that we're going to have, let's say, 20% of, of a bucket of money coming due every six months or so. So as rates rise, we'll reinvest at, at higher rates. Okay. Um, the what, what you just said, Mark, is a perfect segue in two ways. One, the yield curve is upward sloping before it, uh, before it goes back down. Uh, it looks like a, a hill in the Berkshires, not quite a mountain in, um, not, not quite a mountain, but a bit of a hill where um, if you buy a short-term treasury for one month, you're, you're getting paid about 2.75. And to Mark's point, if you go out to two and a half years, you start to you get up to 4.25. But then that actually comes down below four as you extend past 10 years. So to Mark's point, uh, we're building bond ladders to capture the peak of the curve to give you the highest rates, uh, which I, uh, I think makes a lot of sense. And then second to your point about room for rates to rise further. Um, so one of the uh, uh, one of my favorite uh, uh, investment books that I got from my dad. It's a beautiful, colorful book. It looks great on anyone's coffee table or bookshelf. Um, is called The Triumph of the Optimist by uh, Elroy Dimson and Marsh. Can't remember his first name, but Marsh and Dimson. They updated every year the Credit Suisse annual yearbook partner in partnership with the London Business School, where my brother went. Um, but they they have a wonderful the whole book. Um, the book's purpose and why it's called Triumph of the Optimist is, is to show investment returns over time. So you get through world wars, all kinds of political events, upheavals. What's amazing is how consistent bills, bonds, and stocks returns are, whether you're in Finland or Sweden or the United States or Japan. Um, over the long arc of history, 100 years plus, stock returns have averaged 10% per year. As a lot of people know, bond returns have averaged 5% a year. And bills returns have averaged 3.7% or 4% a year. So to your point, Mark, about more room to, to, to rise, um, with the Federal Reserve rate increases, bills are up to 3.3 as compared to an average of 3.7. So that's the category that's actually the most normal. While it feels incredibly high to people that have just gone through ZERP or zero interest rate policy initiated by Nobel Prize winning Ben Bernanke, um, ZERP was historically anomalous. It was the outlier. It was, uh, it's, the, it's the period that does not belong um, in, in, in history. We're almost back to normal with a 3.3% bills rate. Bonds, um, the 10-year U.S. Treasury is up to 3.7. Historically, that was closer to five. So to your point, um, and in, the, uh, in the U.K. today, uh, their long-term bond rate rose to 5%. We're still below average. And then on stocks, we started the year uh, using a basket of predictive models that uh, Vanguard likes and um, uh, generally they're the ones with the highest R squared. 
you can't predict the uh, stocks in the very short term using these models, but you can predict uh, stocks in the long run with much higher accuracy with these models. We started the year with these models saying the S&P is going to generate 3% a year rate of returns. But now that the market's down, that's actually up to 6%. So about 60% of normal. Um, and as the market falls, if the market fell further from here, that would close the gap uh, from the 6% to 10%. But if not, 6% is back in the realm where you can expect to double your money in 12 years. So much healthier than the than the three percent we started the year with. So um, I think a good way to look at this market, Mark, and as you said before, this is starting to feel like previous episodes in your career, my career. Um, the environment we're in now is a lot more normal, uh, given financial history and the way financial markets behave. It's it was very very. We left a period that was very strange, where money was free, uh, and COVID really. Um, amplified the strangeness towards the end with GameStop and AMC and all, all kinds of uh, uh, strange episodes. Um, the pace at which we went from zero interest rates to more of a normal world was incredibly quick, but we've also never had a, a zero interest rate period in history. And we never had one that lasted uh, over a decade. So we don't really know what it's like to leave that kind of period. Um, and I'm Let me, gonna, can, can, I, yeah. can I jump in for one second? And, Please. and just to that point, um, you're, you're right. I mean, we've gone through this, this 12 or 13 year, you know, close to 14 year period now where money's been free. And for our listeners and our clients who are on the younger side of the curve, you know, say mid thirties and younger, they don't know anything but free money. And for those of us who are just slightly above that average age, or in my case, double, um, we, do, we do know that there is a cost of money. And if you look at, if someone's going out to buy or lease a new car, for example, if, if they haven't looked in a year, they better sit down before they start looking at prices. They better sit down before they start looking, they're gonna go lease a new BMW that the lease, the, the, the monthly lease uh, payments now are 30 to 50% more than they were a year ago. So there is a cost of money and it, 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 everyone is seeing it now, right? When they go to the supermarket, if they go to a restaurant, even if it's if they go to McDonald's, everything is up in price. Um, and so it, it's soup to nuts, right? It's everything. Everything is costing more today. Whoa, you can afford soup and nuts, Mark? Well, you know, if I have a coupon, <laughs> I can afford the soup with a coupon. <laughs> I'm sure they're cheaper in Las Vegas or you have more money left over. Or maybe free, you hit the you casino. Free, if you're at the right casino, you get free soup at the table. So. <laughs> okay, no, and um, uh, very well said. And it's good to emphasize that point. Um, uh, Nassim uh, Talib, the author of Black Swan and Fool by Randomness was on CNBC. And he made that point. He said, Guys, Disneyland was open for 10 years, but Disneyland's closed. We're back in the real world now. Um, so uh, th there's there's a, a good chance that from, from here, the next decade is going to look pretty different uh, than the last decade. Um, so- um, Hold on, Pl you just said Disneyland. I have friends who are going to Disneyland, Disneyland this weekend. They said to buy the, uh, the, the, the multi-day multi-park tickets over 200 bucks a person now. That's absurd. Yeah. Uh, that family of four going to Disneyland, you know, it's going to cost you between parking, entry, food, souvenirs, and everything else. 
count on probably 2000 bucks. Another good. Well, anyway, we love Disneyland. I mean, and I'm happy for other families to go, right. but uh, that's a very high price. Um, all right. Pivoting from Mickey Mouse back to um, the federal funds rates. Um, and Talib made this point on CNBC. It's a great clip. Uh, maybe we can put it up on the blog, but um, we left a strange world. We're back in a, in a more normal world. And um, Mark, I, I was looking at the effective, the federal, the federal funds rate um, throughout history since the seventies to now. And what's fascinating is in the 1994 recession, the lowest, the, the, the place we got to when the Fed cut rates to stimulate the economy because of the recession, the lowest it got was 3%. Right. In 2004, uh, when we cut rates um, uh, post the dot-com implosion, September 11th, to try to stimulate the economy, the lowest it got was 1%. And then after the great financial crisis, we, of course, got to zero. You know, Federal Reserve uh, policymakers have been talking forever about the zero bound, what happens if you get to zero, can you go negative? Um, so each recession in kind of the Greenspan, post-Greenspan era, we kept going lower and lower and lower. And it's just incredible uh, to think that we held it at zero from 2009 to 2016, and once again, 2020. Um, once policymakers take a tool out of the toolbox, it's proven very hard for them to not take it out again. So unfortunately, zero interest rates is something that has now been done twice. Um, previously, Japan was the only major country to try it. Uh, ben Bernanke studied Japan a lot, which makes sense. Um, but what's interesting is the bigger question to me, I think, is uh, you know the, the, all the focus on CNBC and Wall Street Journal and the pundits is when is the Federal Reserve going to stop raising interest rates? How high are they going to raise interest rates? I think the much more interesting question is, will the floor stay zero or are we going to return to a world where the lowest it goes is 2004 or 1994? You know, where do we draw the line that this is the cheapest we'll make, uh, we'll, we'll make money? I think the, um, the, the U.S. economy grew quite robustly from the end of World War II up until about the late 90s, early 2000s. And all throughout that era, we had high interest rates. There, there's a big argument among economists. Um, maybe the US is too developed. Maybe we've, uh, you know, we're not gonna grow the same way we grew before, et cetera. We don't need to get all into that in the podcast, but where you draw that floor of how low rates can go in a recession, um, and especially given all the craziness that we had, um, in terms of the housing market and meme stocks, um, you know, obviously as a, as a citizen, um, I, I would hope they draw it above zero as a market participant. I hope they draw it above zero, but to me where they put that floor is as important or more than where they stop raising rates. And I think one interesting um, aspect of the, Fe the Federal Reserve forecast, so the Federal Reserve sets the effective funds rate, but they also obviously do a lot of interviews, talk a lot. They have the official minutes. The long-term forecast from the Fed, importantly, is 2.5%. The long-run Fed funds forecast, 2.5%. If the Fed set a floor of 2.5 versus zero, uh, that, ha that has very uh, profound and, I think, good implications for the economy. Um, but that, that's something I'm kind of, I'm curious about. I'm curious to see, obviously, it could change depending on who the Fed chair is. But it's just remarkable to see that we used to think, 
you know, so pre 1994, the federal funds rate peaked uh, at 10%. And the Fed said, wow, we've had this big recession. We need to lower all the way to three. And then pre dot com implosion, the Fed funds rate peaked at six and a half. And then we said, oh, we've got this recession. We need to go all the way to one. And then pre the 2008 crisis, Fed funds rate peaked at five. So it's just an interesting, it, it's like, a, it's like, a, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, the EKG or cardiogram. I mean, it's like, a, you know, it's got ups and downs and it just looks like the patient's dying. And, uh, you, you know, it, it, it's kind of, um, it's kind of remarkable that we've, we've changed what easy monetary policy looks like. So, yeah, I mean, look, uh, you know, you, you could look back and, I'm sure there are exceptions, but you could look back a, a big picture point of view and say, well, every time, every time money went to, to be f- almost free, let's call it zero or near zero, it was on the heels of some type of crisis, right? Right. Market crisis, financial crisis, um, coronavirus crisis, right? And so, you know, it, so it seemed like it, it, it happened as a result of some, some, catastrophic or semi-catastrophic event and to your point like two and a half percent would be a great floor because if there is another crisis in the future hope you know look god willing there won't be but if there you know if if something horrific should happen again down the road the fed has to have dry powder right if you if if your new normal if the new normal goes back to zero and the economy stalls or stops because of some catastrophic event, what do they do then, right? They don't have any dry powder. So if you're two and a half percent and another worldwide health crisis occurs, God forbid, but if it does, at least then you have the ability and the dry powder to say, okay, well, we're going to make money free again. We need to keep the economy going or it needs a shot in the arm. No pun intended. Right. So, <laughs> so I, I, I agree. I agree with you a hundred percent. Um, you know, from a, from speaking as you know someone who's been a participant in these markets, you know, um, a professional on the side of it for you know for almost forty years, um, you, you, you've you've seen a lot of things occur, and and just when you think you know it all, you're you're proven wrong. You don't know it all, um, but I think that's a really good point, Steve. Maybe the most important point that I don't think money will ever be free again. Unless, unless it has to be, right, for a very specific reason. Yeah, no, and, and it's a great point. And um, so I've been going back and tracing through history. And to your point about, um, it seems like a, a lot of commentators, political, economic, are rooting for the Fed to cut interest rates. But to your point, whenever the Fed cuts interest rates, it's almost always, not almost, it's always because bad stuff is happening. And it was remarkable to me uh, on my birthday in 2007, the Federal Reserve did an emergency rate cut. They cut the Fed funds rate half a point uh, to, from over five to under five. And the stock market rose over 2%. So this was September 18th, 2007. The Fed cuts rates half a point. The stock market goes up 2% and uh, mark the top two performing stocks on the day were Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just remarkable. So the headlines were, if the Fed cuts rates in time, uh, economists believe we'll avoid a recession, 
right? And this is the fall of 2007. And uh, everybody knows and if uh, what happened next. And if they don't, go watch Money, uh, uh, go watch, uh, um, not Moneyball with Brad Pitt, the other one with uh, The Big Short with Brad Pitt, uh, or ask your parents. But um, what, well, I was going to say, if you, if you mentioned Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns, anybody in business school today would have to go to their textbooks or online. <laughs> no, it, it's a good point. And, I, you know, there's some people in the industry that have been around that have old Lehman hats and uh, Bear Stearns t-shirts. And I was thinking, I saw the other day a car. Have you, you see those cars around that have the Carvana, like a new way to buy a car yeah. license plate holder? Like I was vending, thinking, like a vending machine. Yeah, we, we got to buy some of those before they go bankrupt, right? Like I, I was thinking, you know, every every cycle there's, there's there's you know, there's Enron, there's Lehman Brothers, there's Bear Stearns. And you might, you might want to buy a Tesla and put a car, you know, get a Carvana license plate holder. I mean, we, yeah, I think we're at the point we can start to collect some mementos before the cycle fully turns. I think, I think Elon Musk would track you down from outer space <laughs> and laser you to death if he did that. <laughs> Just something to think about. But right, Carvana, right. Carvana, sir, I don't know if you checked the Carvana stock price, but uh, it turns out um, it turns out buying cars and selling them for less is, than you paid for them is not a, a good business model. Right. Um, but, but by the way, we're not, we're, we're not, we're not forecasting Carvana's going bankrupt. Great point. Right. We're not, we're not advocating it, nor do we have any other, any information on that. We're just commenting. Not short sellers. We're not short Carvana. It's an excellent point. Right. And um, no, th there was, um, there was an old, uh, I don't want to, I won't say his name. I don't want to say old timey, but uh, a venture capitalist who's also been around for a while. And he said, all these businesses in the last 10 years were built in the era of free money. And now that money's no longer free, he's, his, his point was they're just not built to ever become uh, profitable. They're, they're, they're perpetual. Uh, you know, it's like the, the Uber model of scale as big as you can and worry about profits later. His point was there's going to be a lot of companies built that just will never get profitable, that'll be orphaned and ultimately acquired by bigger companies or private equity. But um, all, all that's just beginning. There's been headlines that, late stage venture capital companies rather than issue new equity. So they have to dilute their valuation. They're going out and tapping debt at much higher interest rates mm -hmm. just to prolong the period where they can pretend that their uh, inflated valuation from the free money world is real. So it's, you got homeowners saying, you know what, I'm not going to sell because I liked I liked Redfin's mark uh, of my last, my, their last mark of my home valuation. You got venture capital companies saying, you know, I'm going to wait this out. I'm going to, I'm going to pay 8%, 10% more on debt. Cause I don't, they're basically forestalling reality. Um, the default rate on junk bonds, junk companies, those rated tri below triple B is still below 2%. So we haven't even entered the world, you know, in a typical recession, the default rate will get up to over 10%. We're still at um, below 2%. So very much the uh, beginnings of the movie, right? When in the Jackson Hole speech, when Jay Powell referenced the Keeping At It uh, autobiography of Paul Volcker, I think that started this movie, Mark. And uh, I don't know where we're in, but we're not at intermission. Yeah, no, I agree. And get, just like a real quick comment. We're, we're running a little long here, but just a real quick comment on what you said about- But dropping so much wisdom, Mark. I, I'm guessing that our listeners right now are like hoping we're not at our intermission. We're going to put this podcast on a loop and listen to it for 24 hours. <laughs> the, 
you know, one of the, one of the things that we've been we've always been cautious about is is risk and risk as it relates to reward, right? And 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 return. And one thing that we've you and I have we've always subscribed to is that we don't chase rates, right? You know, rates are what they are. Like we don't create the markets, um, and we've never chased rate. We we won't put you know any part of a portfolio at risk. To pick up an extra couple of points yield, right? That's just not. This doesn't make sense to us. And just you know, kind of bringing this all together, the the, the point that money now is much more expensive. There is a cost to it, and not just to the consumer and to our listeners, but to every company out there that borrows money or you know is leveraged in, in, in any to any level, right? That puts pressure on them. And if they're not super strong financially. You know, there are unfortunately going to be, as you said, a lot of businesses that won't make it through this period. And, and we're not, you know, we're not prognosticating, you know, bankruptcy BK for, you know, specific industries or companies, but that's a fact. Not every company does it the right way. And, um, and you, you should be very careful. And, it, and if, you, if, you ha- if you're holding bonds, if you're in a junk bond fund or a high, today it's called a high yield fund. Junk, the word junk doesn't exist anymore, you know, officially, but, you know, a high yield fund um, where you're holding high yield bonds, um, you need to be careful and take a look at those. Um, plus, as rates have moved up, the prices of, of, of the, the, these high yield funds and high yield bonds will drop significantly more than, a government bond fund or your government bonds or you know good quality corporate bonds. So just take a look at them if you're holding those in your portfolio. Um, and if you have questions on them, obviously we're happy to talk about them individually offline, but um, it, it, it's something you need to be aware of. Perfect. So we're going to, um, we're just going to, th- uh, anyone still listening to the podcast, thank you. Wake and up. We- Everybody wake up. Wake up. No, no. Stand up. We're going to, and, and it's a fascinating time. So uh, hopefully our listeners share some of the, um, uh, the curiosity. Hopefully we, we've um, given them some clarity on what's been going on. But um, to end the podcast is point out some key dates coming up uh, and things to pay attention to. And then we'll, we'll check back in uh, in a quarter or before then, if anything uh, uh, super material happens in terms of our market update, which we'll do more regularly. But um, so you, you briefly touched on this earlier, Mark, the next uh, federal, the, the next FOMC meeting, Federal Reserve meeting, uh, where they're expected to uh, possibly change interest rates is November 1st and 2nd, mm-hmm. followed by December 13th and 14th. Um, right now, the Fed funds effective rate is 3 to 3.25. The Fed futures market says in November that the Fed is going to take the uh, Fed funds rate up by 75 basis points or 0.75 to 3.75. Mark, do you agree? I agree. So November 1st to 2nd, I are, I'm going to give our listeners a, a moment. I know they're all set in their calendars for November 1st and 2nd, um, but most likely rates will be going up there to 3.75 to 4. And then Mark, in December, uh, it seemed the, the Fed markets, the Fed futures markets a little less certain, uh, but they have by the end of January, the Fed funds rate getting up to 4.5, uh, which is another 0.75% increase. Mark, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's true. You know, it, it, the, 
it wouldn't be unusual for the Fed to take it a little easier on everybody in December, right? Because it's a week before Christmas and the holidays. Yeah. Um, but I again, look, it depends on, you know, what the inflation data is that comes out between now and then. And, um, you know, but I, I we're going to see a steady, we're certainly not going to see any drops. So, or, or, or you know, reduction in rates. So uh, I, I agree with that. I, I think those targets, um, you know, four and a half percent by the end of January. This is how it makes sense to me. Perfect. Maybe we'll do a flash podcast on the Fed meeting. Um, get our, I, I know our listeners uh, can't wait. Um, so for the Fed meeting, I mean. Um, so um, a, a few more things. One, we're entering earnings season. So companies are reporting earnings from Q3, as our listeners that work at public companies are very aware of. Um, October 10th was the start of earnings season and ends November 18th. And the majority of companies are reporting the third week of October, right around Halloween. Uh, expect companies to talk about the rising dollar, its impact on earnings. Uh, S&P company, average S&P company, uh, generates a significant amount of, of their revenues overseas, especially you think companies like Microsoft and Apple. They're sure to talk about the dollar and higher rates. Um, the, so earnings season is getting underway. And then uh, we already talked about the Fed meetings, um, the dollar. Uh, this was the fastest increase in dollar value as compared to a basket of uh, uh, major currencies around the world, uh, pretty much since the dollar left the gold standard. Uh, so if you've been looking at traveling to Paris, Mark, I, to my, I was shocked to hear that. Uh, how old's your son now, Mark? He's 11. He's 11 and his entire life, he's never been to Paris, right? He's never seen the Mona Lisa in his entire life, he told us. <laughs> so it's a great time to plan that trip to Italy, Paris. Uh, the dollar uh, has more or less reached parity with the euro and the British pound. So again, this is a, we are optimists and this is an optimist podcast. We're delivering the good news. The good news is travel around the world, especially Europe. The dollar has never been stronger. Used car prices are down 10%. Uh, the, the, the first big decline since May of 2020 and used car prices are set to fall further. So cars are getting, gonna get cheaper. Homes are gonna get cheaper. Good news if you're a home buyer. Foreign vacations are getting cheaper. Um, you can now get paid a material interest rate to wait for the stock market to get cheaper. Stock market returns have gotten better. Uh, Mark, as far as I look, I just see a lot of good news. Yeah, no, look, I mean, we're always optimistic, you know, and uh, there are a lot of good things on the horizon. We just gotta get through this bumpy period. Look, we're, we're, we're basically paying the piper for the last 13, 14 years of, of free money. And uh, it, it, it's been a shock to the system, shock to, to many individuals. We'll get through this, right? We, all, we always do, right? Um, and uh, like you said, Steve, I mean, there, there's a lot of bright things on the horizon. Mark, can we end with the statistic of the day? Sure. I mean, before your, your wonderful outro, of course. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> By the out. way, for, for our listeners, Mark does not phone it in. He, we, we could use the intro and outro from the recording, but I enjoy him doing it. I make him do it each time. So we, um, we, we go the extra mile here. Thanks, Mark. But the, um, the statistic of the day is job openings uh, versus the number of unemployed. So um, from, for the, basically, since the new millennium started, the start of the 2000s, around 2001, um, there's always been less job openings than there are unemployed people. Um, in COVID, uh, things went haywire. 
Um, today, uh, we've all heard about um, how difficult it is to find workers, whether, whether you're talking about Wendy's or a local restaurant or tech companies or uh, uh, whatever the type of industry, it's been really hard for companies to find workers. Um, one of the things the Federal Reserve has talked about is they would actually like to see uh, the, the gap come down in terms of job openings for unemployed. Um, right now, the ratio of job openings to unemployed, so number of openings listed, number of people unemployed, is down to 1.77. So there's still a 1.8 opening for every unemployed person. So while unemployment remains uh, uh, very low, the job openings still uh, remain higher than the unemployed. So one thing the Fed's going to be watching is for that ratio to get closer to one or even get uh, less than one, which is much more than normal uh, historical experience. So it sounds, um, the Fed doesn't like to talk about it too much, but um, they, they use a lot of euphemisms. They're trying to cool the job market. They're trying to slow down the growth. They would love to see the openings come down while the unemployed doesn't go up. Uh, but they're going to take that as a sign of progress that these two numbers are starting to get closer. And that's definitely a metric Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve will be watching. It's definitely one we'll be watching. So as of today, uh, the, the, they, they look a little bit like alligator jaws. The uh, openings to unemployed uh, are starting to get closer to one or below, which the Fed would like to see. That's your statistic of the day, Mark. That's fantastic. And to our listeners, there will be a, an economics test at the end of the year. We will email everybody. Just Griff. Just Griff. Engineer Griff. <laughs> All right. Uh, Mark, any other, uh, any, other, uh, um, any other wisdom you want to uh, drop on our listeners before no, we take it out? I think it's good. I think everybody's Apple Watch just told them to, to wake up, stand up, and walk around. So, <laughs> no, I, I think we've covered a lot of, um, a lot of heady material here today. So, um, Thanks, Steve, for all of that. Uh, remember, the, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts uh, and any guests that we might have. Nothing discussed today should be considered investment advice. And please consult your own financial advisor and tax advisor whenever considering any investment. If you have questions and you're one of our clients, please email us with the term podcast in the subject line. For more information about the podcast, uh, Stephen or myself and our firm, please visit us at www.mk-am.com or email us at info at mk-am.com. Thank you for joining us and look and listen for our next podcast release in the very near future. Mm -hmm.